Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Health Conscious. I'm Peyton. And I'm Christian. And we are excited to have you back here again. We've had great episodes in the past, all the way from nonprofits to insurance to everything in between. We've got another perspective today, which is private practice um, with a great physician that Christian is going to introduce in just a second. But happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Uh, It should be an exciting time. Hope everybody's staying safe. Uh, and healthy out there during this time. Um, If you haven't, make sure that you subscribe to this podcast, either on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. But Christian, seems like an exciting episode today. Um, I'm going to let you do the introduction this time, since you might know this individual just a little bit better than I do. Yeah, his name is Jared Tadji, and there are only a handful of Tadjis around, and so there has to be a connection. This actually happens to be um, my dad and I'm really excited to have him on the podcast we actually bounce around talk about I think it kind of actually bothers Jess and the rest of my family because we usually kind of just start rattling off healthcare talk around the table and things like that and so it was kind of a natural natural ask to have him on the podcast and bounce around some of the topics that we frequently discuss so uh, it feels weird to give a canned introduction about my dad but here here it is um Jared Taji is an experienced orthopedic surgeon with his own practice, Taji Orthopedics, located in Meridian, Idaho. Dr. Taji received his undergraduate degree from Brigham Young University and attended medical school at the University of Virginia. There, he published articles on sports injuries of the shoulder and knee. He also published an innovative approach to increasing the strength of arthroscopic repair of shoulder and knee injuries. After graduating from the University of Virginia, Dr. Taji completed orthopedic residency at the University of Michigan, go blue. This gave him a unique opportunity to work closely with Big Ten athletes for the football, basketball, and hockey teams. He also performed several research projects and published original research in the Journal of Knee Surgery. In addition to sports medicine, he had extensive training in trauma and joint replacement at the University of Michigan. Dr. Taji completed a fellowship in sports medicine and fracture care in Lake Tahoe in 2007. He has an interest in wilderness medicine and international humanitarian work. And he has traveled to Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, and Nepal to participate in surgical missions. Outside of his practice, he enjoys the outdoors, particularly mountain biking and snowboarding and spending time with his wife and seven children. Um, And I can vouch for the mountain biking and snowboarding. He kicks my butt going down the hill. So he is no (laughs) joke. (laughs) And without further ado, let's turn it over to Dr. Taji. All right, we're here with Dr. Taji of Taji Orthopedics. Uh, how are you doing today? Doing great, thank you. Thanks for having me on here. Absolutely, thanks for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice and uh, kind of the unique services that you guys offer over there? Sure, uh, we are a, a solo surgeon practice uh, with two PAs, which is a kind of a rare bird these days in today's healthcare environment. Uh, we're out in Idaho, so it's maybe a little more uh, common to see out there, but still even there, not very common. Uh, we uh, are a, a small practice, although we do a decent amount of, of surgery and, and the healthcare volume, uh, just in terms of staff and personnel, we're, we're a, obviously a small practice. Uh, I think unique, our unique offering that we tell patients, and I truly believe it's true, is, uh, is that we're we have very personalized care. We're not constrained by uh, a healthcare system or a, uh, you know, whatever um, it, it, a physician in an employed system might have different constraints in terms of what 
products they can offer, what they, how much time they can spend with the patient, a lot of different things, uh, how things are scheduled in their office, what their office looks like, what their staff looks like. We're not constrained by any of those things. And we can provide very personalized care uh, to each patient. And then, and we do that. Yeah, I think that's great to hear. And uh, something that I know a lot of people probably expect out of a, uh, a physician's office as well. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of the pressures that private practices are kind of under right now? Um, we see a lot of private practices kind of mass consolidating into these larger health systems. So I think it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on, you know, some of those pressures. Absolutely. Now, there are a lot of changes that are happening in, in reimbursement and in, in, in cost uh, of running a practice. Let's talk about the reimbursement side. Um, you know, the, um, Reimbursement is declining uh, for, for us, especially from government payers. And getting paid is requiring more and more work in terms of paperwork and oversight. And there's much more regulation around how we get paid, but many more denials now from both insurance companies and from uh, government or um, from Medicare Advantage plans, for example. And so we have to not only do the work to get paid, but we also have to do the additional work of collecting that money. And so that, that costs, that, that adds a cost. Uh, and then additionally on the cost side, you know, uh, many of us have started using electronic medical records, which are very expensive, uh, running a practice with billers and, and uh, receptionist and for me an x-ray tech and an MA, it's just, it's just very expensive. Some of that is because of the regulation we're under that requires that many people uh, to run it. And so as costs have gone up and reimbursement has gone down, it's, it has made it harder for smaller practices such as mine uh, to survive. And so there's, uh, there is an economy of scale in, in combining physicians with, uh, for example, a biller that can work with two different surgeons instead of a one biller for one surgeon. And so, you know, I have high fixed overhead costs because of the number of employees that I have, but really I could probably have had two, add one employee, maybe two and have a second surgeon. And so uh, my overhead costs are, are high relative uh, to where, you know, they, they should be in order to survive. But, you know, um, for now, because Idaho reimburses relatively well, that's the reason, one of the reasons I've been able to survive out there, as well as I think doing some other smart things with running a practice. So uh, Peyton mentioned one of the macro level trends of mass consolidation. Another, another macro level trend we're seeing in healthcare right now is a shift from volume to value. Um, providers taking on risk also. Um, so I just wanted to kind of hear as well in, in your domain, um, if you and your, if your colleagues just kind of at large and, and maybe it's some of both, how they feel about taking on more risk in a value-based landscape, whether that's in a bundled payment arrangement or a fee for value arrangement or, or another, another arrangement. Is that something that, is this, is, is absorbing risk something that's being tolerated or embraced? I think it's being tolerated more than embraced at this point. Uh, at least uh, uh, where we are, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the value-based uh, bundled and alternative payment arrangements have not completely made their way to, to where we are, but I'm certainly aware and keeping my finger on the pulse of that. I, I don't think that many specialists are really excited about this. 
I, I can't really speak to primary care, but right now, as you know, specialists like myself get paid. We do, we do a job, we do is provide a service, make a widget and get paid for it. And so if you want to get, make more money, you just make more widgets under uh, a value-based landscape really requires us to be a lot smarter with how uh, healthcare is performed, um, pro providing low cost care, with, you know, high value care. And that's actually harder to do. And so like any change that can be scary, uh, I don't, I don't, I can't really say that many colleagues that are in my specialty or similar very specialized areas are probably very excited about this. Uh, excited or not though, it's happening. And those that are smart are, are learning about it and figuring out how to survive in the new environment. I suspect, although I don't know this for sure, that primary care might be embracing this more than specialists are. I haven't really spoken to them to know that, but just seeing how these payment um, plans are set up, um, I suspect that they might embrace it a little bit more than a specialist would. Definitely. Yeah, thanks for providing that perspective. That's a topic that we speak about a lot, Is, is and, and they're, they're so tricky to work through. Who takes how much risk? Where? How is that divvied up and, and, and the like as well in these alternative payment arrangements? I mean, I know that we're kind of looking forward in these arrangements and they haven't quite made their way to, um, you know, the, 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 the landscape that you that you work in. Um, but looking forward, some have been skeptical about private practices at large ability to manage, manage care in a value-based environment. So I'm just going to pull in a quote um, that we'd love you to respond to from Healthcare Finance News that's um, fairly critical of private practice ability to manage care in, in a value-based landscape. So here's the quote. <clears throat> Independent physician practices lack scale, they lack data, they lack technical capabilities. They lack the coaching and all of the structures that these health systems do have, said Farsad Mostashari, the co-founder and CEO of, of Alidaid in the health session, but I give them that. When it comes to which is better, that's, that's up to interpretation. Ferris argues that his health system is in a better place to implement value-based care because the institution puts pressure on physicians to do better care. The incentives that we place on our doctors are incentives to manage care, not to make money on more or less care, Ferris said. Because all of our doctors are employed, because all of our doctors are employed, that means they collect a salary and may have some variable pay, but it is not like being in a private practice. So would you mind just responding to that quote? What would you say if you're in the room with uh, with, with Dr. Mostashari and Ferris? Sure, no, that's, that's a great quote. And I think uh, fair criticism of private practice. Um, I think the reality is, is much more complicated than saying that all private practices um, are, have lower value than big hospital systems. And I'll give you a couple, a couple reasons for that. Uh, I do believe that bigger consolidated groups or hospital systems are probably better capable of dealing with regulations. You know, they probably have better staffing in place for that. Maybe or maybe not, they're able to better uh, use technology. I think that's up for argument uh, because sometimes I can adopt technology faster than they, certain technologies faster than they can because it doesn't require the same process for yeah. approval. And so there are some things that big hospitals do better. Uh, I don't know that you can say every large consolidated group or hospital system provides care at a lower cost though. Uh, I, I, do, I do surgeries at both uh, a small surgical hospital that I own with a group of other surgeons and at a large, relatively large regional hospital system. I get the EOBs occasionally that my patients bring in 
when they have surgery at the hospital, when I'm shocked that the costs are about three times uh, what we uh, what we can do the exact same surgery at the surgical hospital. And so uh, when I look at these hospitals, I don't know all, all the reasons for that. Uh, some of it may be a very large bureaucracy. I mean, these hospitals have large brick and mortar structures. They have you know, a lot of grounds that need to be maintained, multiple levels of administration, uh, and pretty complex uh, organizational structures uh, with lots of people that are paid within that organization. And they can use their large size, at least in our market, to really, really push and uh, get higher reimbursement from insurance companies. So I'm going to push back on the idea that uh, the hospital system automat automatically allows you to provide care at a lower cost. That is not what I've seen. Now, I do think that there, there may be some large consolidated systems uh, that, are very that are vertically integrated that are really take this value-based idea at heart and make it a point to, to really work towards that. The hospital, the few hospital systems that I've worked in have uh, almost universally been more expensive um, than, than, um, than the smaller ones that are more nimble. You know, when I provide care through, through my small private practice, I have a very sort of raw interaction with patients. I'm right at the front lines of healthcare delivery. And if I have a bad interaction, if it's too expensive, if patient waits, patient, if they wait too long, if you know someone forgot to wear their mask in my lobby, I mean, I, those reviews go online right away. I get that feedback, and we, by the end of the day, we've usually corrected that problem. Um, and so we're very conscious about cost, about wait times, about the quality of what we're doing. And if we're not doing a good job, we know that immediately, as opposed to how you know, that feedback might work through a large hospital system. So I think that there's a lot of nuances to this. I don't think bigger is always better and smaller is always worse. Um, I think there's a, a lot more sort of um, variability uh, with, within that structure. Yeah, I think those are great points and uh, I appreciate your perspective. I think one of the things we want to, uh, to do is, is you have the unique perspective of, you know, being both a provider and an administrator of your practice. And so kind of going into that, I want to ask you two questions. And the first being, what's one thing that you kind of wish administrators or operators, managers in the healthcare setting understood about providers? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, um, there's this, seems like universal uh, sort of uh, contention between hospital administrators and, and doctors. And uh, don't think it needs to be that way, but I think, um, we, we tend to be, uh, I'll, I'll take, for example, my field orthopedic surgery is a very, very narrow, very, very specialized field. And so my colleagues have a very uh, deep depth of knowledge, but in a very narrow area. It gives us probably an over, overconfidence in areas that aren't necessarily uh, within our area of expertise. And so, um, I think this is probably better answering your second question. I think providers in, um, you know, that are very, very specialized in their area should trust that administrators have a broader point of view. They understand the bigger picture of the hospital system of revenues and expenses. So that answers your second question. Uh, and that there should be a little more trust there. What do I wish administrators understand about providers? I wish that they would, uh, you know, listen a little bit more about some of the struggles that we are 
meeting on the front lines of healthcare delivery, I, I feel like there's sometimes a disconnect between what the providers are doing and what the and what the administrators understand about um, what's happening in a hospital system. Sometimes these meetings between administrators and providers, uh, at least from the perspe provider perspective, sound a little bit too bus too too business like. You know, too too many numbers, too many spreadsheets. And as a businessman, I understand that uh, hospitals have to survive so that they can take care of patients tomorrow and the next day. Uh, but I think to to providers, I think that there it would be nice to have a little bit more of a of, of understanding of the clinical, the actual sort of big picture of the clinical um, the the clinical work we're doing uh, on the ground. And I don't even know if that makes sense, but uh, I think that that's probably one of the providers main can, uh, frustrations with administrators. Yeah, I think you you touched on my next question just a little bit uh, in answering that one. But I, I did want to elaborate on something you mentioned. And it's that idea of, of when you're approaching meetings between providers and administrators, and the idea of it almost being too businessy. Um, business is a large part of healthcare. I'm, I'm as Christian and I have spent a lot of time studying, as I'm sure you know, as a practice administrator. What what have you found? And you're also a provider, so uh, it's a different perspective. But what have you found to be critical in making the business talk sound less businessy, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, great question. And um, I'm, I uh, I think that 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 question. I'm not sure that I. Um, I'm great at that. It's something I'm working on. I mean, I, I meet with my own staff and we talk about revenues and expenses and finances and, uh, you know, and collecting money from patients. And my biller says, you know, when, when you offer, you know, a fiscal supplementation shot, make sure you tell them we need to check their insurance benefits and this, that, and the other. And I'm a little bit uncomfortable talking about a clinical question and a financial question in the same sentence. So even I struggle with this exact question in my own practice. And so I've basically uh, told my biller, I'm not comfortable discussing insurance or any money questions in front of the patient. Mm -hmm. I'm going to leave, I'm going to defer all that to her. Uh, but I think at the, at the bottom line of this question is just listening. I think showing uh, you know, and I think it's like this in all of our relationships. I think administrators and healthcare workers, providers, if they just listened and showed interest and uh, followed up on on concerns that were raised, it doesn't mean that 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 surgeon, you know, because they think they should have a certain robot, gets the robot to help them do surgery. But it does mean listening to the reasons and doing a little bit of research and. And, and then having a, you know, a well thought out response and a reason why we can't do that. Um, and, and just really sh showing sort of empathy and understanding to other people's points of view, I think goes a long way. I know that's a very general answer, um, but I'm not sure if I can give you more specifics than that at this point. No, that's a great, great answer. And, and I'm thinking about my summer at Guidehouse and we had a handful of consultants that had some sort of a clinical background. I know we had several folks with a nursing background and. We even had a few few physicians and they were always hot commodities on the teams because I and I kind of assumed it was because they could talk the talk. Right. But I think more than anything, they were just doing what you were saying is just empathizing and listening and caring. They knew that was the language and that's not a language that 
I can't speak or Peyton can't speak. That's the language that we can learn as well as healthcare leaders, operators, administrators too, is just be, it's just demonstrating interest and empathy. That's a great point. So kind of, kind of shifting gears to this last kind of section of, of, of the podcast, uh, speaking to leadership development, career development and the like. So you've, um, you know, post high school, you've completed around 15 years of schooling. Um, and there are lots of important skills, of course, that you just can't learn in a classroom. So uh, what's an important skill or tool that you've learned that you didn't learn in a classroom? Yeah, great, great question. Um, why don't I, um, I could list a bunch, but I'll just choose a couple. Let me tell you a clinical one and a business one. Um, so from a clinical standpoint, um, we didn't learn, uh, we really didn't learn a lot about cost containment. And, and, uh, and when I was in training, which was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was, there's a lot about, you know, how to screen for uh, a disease or an illness, you know, what kinds of tests you need to order to confirm it and what sort of treatments you need to implement, you know, when you have a positive test. Very, very little discussion back then, maybe they do now of, okay, how do we look at this in the context of, of cost and, and uh, population health? Does everyone get a test? Just because there's a test doesn't mean we do it. Just because we have a way to treat a meniscus tear in my world, does that mean that everyone with a meniscus tear gets a surgery? Uh, how do we, how do we you know, really look at this in the context of what we as a population should pay for and can pay for and how do we allocate those resources very very little discussion when i was there about allocation of, of clinical resources second one is the business aspects of really the, the money flow and um sort of um, um reimbursement of healthcare, which kind of goes along with the first one but you know really didn't learn anything about cpt coding uh, how how codes are bundled, how they're um, how they're paid, how those codes you know go through uh, the system, and you know one of these days CPT code coding may be a thing of the past, and maybe a footnote when we go to value based uh, care. But um, you know I think providers need to be have a better understanding of uh, where of, of the finance behind healthcare, the reimbursement behind it which kind of goes along with the first one. I think they're related. Very, very interesting. And I know that there are a lot of kind of medical education reform is also a hot topic also. So I, I be interesting to see how that, how that, how that shift takes place. And if that's baked into um, education and training, if it's not in, in already. Yeah. So. Yep. Yep. Um, and we always, so we've had a few different guests across the healthcare ecosystem today. We've had guests from, uh, academia, we've had guests from private equity, we've had guests from nonprofits, and we always like to ask the same question, no matter uh, no matter the individual that we have on the podcast. And that question is the following. What's one tool that you recommend the next generation of healthcare leaders add to their toolkit? Hmm. Great question. And this, uh, this may may qualify as a tool, not as a tool, but maybe more as a, uh, a, a knowledge base. But I, whenever I talk to young uh, residents, med students, pre-med students, I always talk to them about the financial part of, of their lives. Um, so 
not 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 necessarily okay this is how you're going to get paid to be a doctor or a pa but you know how are you going to manage through your personal finances through a changing healthcare system uh back when i grew up in the 80s it, it was a completely fee for service system uh that you know you you build something you get paid for it and that that system's changing uh, as we've talked about today and i i talked to young aspiring healthcare professionals about this, you know, talk to them about reducing their debt, being smart with money, making good money choices. And uh, I emphasize that our system is changing and uh, we'll, we'll be, you know, the healthcare system will always be here. We'll always have jobs most likely. Um, but we will, the, the, the way we get paid, how much we get paid, all that will, will most certainly change. And so I encourage them to, to be become, you know, debt-free, manage their finance as well, and be smart with money, so that they can continue to do what they're supposed to do, which is provide healthcare and do it in a way that's not stressful to them, so that they can help people be healthy and stay healthy, and not worry about how much money they need to make to survive. Excellent, excellent answer, and very, very unique angle as well. Well, Dad, Dr. Taji. Uh, Dad, Dr. Taji, either one. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. We've been kind of all over the, we, we've spoken about a lot of different factors today, practice management, the administrator, provider relationship, professional development. Um, and so thanks for, for your robust perspectives on each of these different angles. I mean, we have these conversations all the time and, I, and sometimes I think, man, this is too good not to have on the record. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Enjoyed uh, spending some time with you, Christian, and with you, Peyton, and uh, wish you both uh, the best in, uh, in your future careers.